Well, I'm really thankful for the reception that um, was put on just a little while ago. Thanks for everybody who was there. Thanks for everybody who put it on. Uh, you know you've been at a good um, reception when you have to spend the whole prelude cleaning food off your, off your coat and your shirt, which is what I did, which I'm going to blame Liam because that's convenient to do. It might well have been my fault, but I'm going to blame him. I just want to say just briefly... Um, Thank you for the time that you have been such a supportive and um, such a blessing to our family. We are really thankful for the time that God has given us to be with you and uh, are thankful that it's hard to leave. And um, you've just been a, a, a congregation that has loved us and supported us and helped us and forgiven us and um, helped uh, teach us uh, what it means to be in ministry. Um, and uh, as I was going through my my desk this week, kind of clearing things out. I would find things, you know, it was a little trip down memory lane, and I, I, I found things that clearly were the sort of thing that someone who just came out of seminary would put in a file that they think would be useful. And uh, I found them, and I was like, I haven't looked at this in eight years. So everything that I have uh, learned about ministry has been um, through, uh, through you all and with you all. So we're, on behalf of my family, we're really thankful for all of you. We'll continue to treasure you and this time in our hearts. But um, we're also, I'm glad for the way that we come and gather before God's Word each morning and each Sunday morning, and today we're going to be continuing in the sermon series on heaven as we in Advent are not only remembering what Christ, that Christ has come, but we are remembering also that He is coming. And so we take this opportunity of Advent to be expecting not just a celebration of Christmas, but the very advent of Jesus himself and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And so we're going to be reading from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. You can find it on page 1014 of your pew Bible if you'd like to turn there and follow along. Let us, uh, before we read, ask God to send his spirit to illumine us as we read in here. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Um, you speak the world into creation and you send your word forth. Um, you sent your word through the prophets. You sent your son preeminently as the word made flesh. And you continue to send your word through the Holy Spirit illumining Holy Scripture to us. Um, your word goes forth. It accomplishes the purposes for which you send it. We pray that you would accomplish your purposes in us and through us today that your spirit would open our hearts and minds and ears, that we might hear you speaking, that we might be um, convicted, challenged, encouraged, edified, built up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Would you do some of that work this morning as we open your word together? Uh, we're thankful that your spirit is faithful, that you are faithful to your promises, and so we open your word with expectation that you will speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I invite you to listen now to the Word of God as it is recorded for us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so our question this morning is, how do I know the best is yet to come? How do we know that the promises of God are worth giving our lives to? How do we know that we won't be disappointed? when we come into our inheritance. Of course, the whole reason that this question emerges for us is that uh, the evidence of our lives often does not seem to offer the kind of irrefutable proof that we're looking for that the best is yet to come. In fact, it sometimes seems like the evidence counts against hope. We get knocked around a bit as we pass through our earthly lives. It doesn't seem like, necessarily, things are better for Christians than they are for other people. Uh, Our external circumstances don't always correspond to the great and glorious promises of God that we read of in Scripture. And so, we might ask, how do we know? Because it doesn't always look like something better is coming. In fact, the evidence often seems to count against hope. And right off the bat, we get in 1 Peter a letter that is addressing this very question, these circumstances, because we see in verse 1 that Peter is writing from Rome to the elect exiles of the dispersion. So the letter is written to Christians who have had to, for various reasons, flee their home country and go to a different country. We know that the church in its early days had um, on and off periods of persecution, but we also know that even when they weren't being persecuted, they were this tiny little sect of just a few thousand people in this enormous Roman empire that worshipped other gods worshipped Caesar, that it was a culture that was not entirely agreeable to the Christian claims. And so this little group of Christians were people who were used to feeling like exiles, like foreigners or sojourners. And so both literally and spiritually, this letter is addressing people who are surrounded by a culture with different values, sometimes hostile values, for people living in a land where it feels like they are swimming against the current most of the time. And in our church, of course, we know, as the flags out there demonstrate, that there are many of us who know just how this feels to be a sojourner and a foreigner, because many of us have come to the United States from other countries, sometimes because of political situations. And I've talked to some of you about how sometimes you feel out of step. You feel um, with a kind of American culture and American values and life that it can be a difficult transition, and you feel that sense of being a foreigner or an exile. But more and more, American Christians are also feeling this way in American culture, feeling out of step with the prevailing cultures and values. Um, 
It used to be uh, a time when sociologists and observers of religion refer to as Christendom, a time when there was actually earthly benefit to being involved in a church, that, that society at large um, rewarded people who were uh, involved in church. It was something that was looked up, uh, something that was valued and appreciated. It was a sign that you were a good member of society, that you were a member of a church. And, and at that time, pastors were highly esteemed members of their communities, the good old days. But nowadays, I find that when I tell someone that I'm a pastor, their response is very frequently the same response you would expect if I told them that I was a blacksmith. Because they sort of look and say, oh, I didn't know people still did that. Heard of that. But nowadays, we know that this sort of Christendom reality of the church and culture being intertwined is coming apart. And so soccer fields and stores are open on Sunday mornings, and the church is far more often thought of as being irrelevant at best, or a place of hypocrisy, and a place to avoid at worst. To be a Christian in America is increasingly to feel like we're in exile, or we're foreigners or strangers in this society. I remember a couple years ago, I was talking with a friend of, um, of my kids, and wait, how is this? Mother of a friend of my kids. And we were talking about spring break was coming up, and we were, she was traveling, we were talking about where she was traveling, and she said, are you going somewhere? And I said, no, it's kind of a busy week for me, you know, it's Holy Week, and Easter's that Sunday, so it's not really a good time to, to go, we'll be just kind of hang around here. And she said, oh yeah, yeah, I, I had forgotten that, yeah, that's right. Now, remind me, what is Easter again? Christendom is no more. Right? We cannot assume that everyone knows the things that we assume and know. And most Christians view this situation with alarm and dismay. So I was so struck to read 1 Peter and see how he greets the situation of exile as he's greeting actual exiles in the Roman Empire, and he responds with confidence and joy and praise. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is how Peter greets exiles. It's amazing because he actually attributes their status of being different, being exiles, being out of step with the rest of culture as being a gift of God's mercy. It is out of God's mercy that he's called us out of this reality to a living hope, to a new inheritance that is beyond worldly uh, decay and corruption and imperfection. We're exiles on earth, Peter says, because we belong to God. And this is why we rejoice. That he, he points the exiles not to their circumstances, but to the inheritance that is beyond, this imperishable, um, eternal, undefiled inheritance and he says, in this, we rejoice. And so, uh, the, and he also assures them that they're being guarded for it in verse 5, and that it is being kept for them in verse 4. And so he wants these exiles to look not at their circumstances, but at the inheritance that, that awaits them, that, that is now rightfully theirs because they've been brought into the family of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Which gets us to the question... How do we know 
the best is yet to come. How do we know? It, it is uh, at least an uncertainty for many of us. And so it's important to watch the language here because what Peter says is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. So the way to the inheritance is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is how we know the best is yet to come. We know the best is yet to come because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Our hope of the inheritance is not just a, um, a, an optimistic hope that things will improve if we stick to it. No, it is rooted in something that has happened in the past, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if in Christ we, um, if in Christ we are, my pages are all a mess here, if in Christ we are to hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Which is really interesting if you think about this in the context of exile in Christendom. Because what once was allowed, what once was encouraged was to be a Christian because of the rewards it, that it might offer you in this life. You could network, you could know people, people would think well of you because you were a member of a church, it was professionally advantageous. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you're hoping for blessing um, because of what Christ can offer you in this life only, then I feel sorry for you. You are most to be pitied. But in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of a bigger resurrection of the dead in which we as believers will take part. And we know it's coming because Jesus is already living it. It's something that has already been accomplished in the past. And so our hope for the inheritance is something we can count on because there is evidence that it's coming to pass because it came to pass for Jesus himself in the resurrection of the dead. And so our inheritance that we are to look at forward for is rooted in what has already happened before any of us were born, that Jesus Christ died and rose and triumphed over the grave. This then transforms actually everything. This shift of recognizing, putting our eyes on the inheritance because of the work of Christ, gives us hope, but even more than hope. It offers meaning and purpose, a new way to view the struggle and trials that come with being exiles in the world. And this is where Peter goes. He says, he talks about the inheritance, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. You, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for that salvation that will be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then read verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So then he brings this image of the, the heat of struggle and trial is no longer um, a punishment. It is not a, a disaster that is befalling us. What it is is that our good goldsmith God is putting us in the refiner's fire. Now, why does a goldsmith put gold in the refiner's fire in the first place? Is it to destroy the gold? It's not to destroy the gold. It's not to punish the gold. It is to cause the, the gold to be purified 
and refine, to shine more brightly. Refining reveals what is more, cl- more clearly what is of lasting and true value. And so this is what Peter invites these exiles who have been sent off uh, far from their home because of their faith. This is how he invites them to view these circumstances. This is God at work. This is God at work, not only doing, promising something good at the end it, for those who endure, but also promising to be at work in the things that we must endure. And the implications of this are really pretty staggering because it means that the trials and struggles that come from being an exile, a sojourner, from being out of step with the culture, from being made fun of, from, from feeling the pinch of, of having to live in a countercultural way, those trials and struggles that are happening to us are actually for us. It is through that that God conforms us into the image of his son. That's how he burns off the dross and the impurity so that we more clearly shine the glory of Jesus Christ in our lives. This theme uh, comes throughout the passage, uh, or the whole letter of 1 Peter, which I encourage you to read. Um, but you might just flip one page to chapter 4, verse 12, where this, Peter picks up this theme and says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised when things come your way, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so what is Peter doing? He is now saying that as we, um, as we enter, as we are sent into exile, as we struggle um, for, for faithfulness in the world, we are actually, that suffering is a kind of sharing in the suffering of Jesus Christ. That is a, a joining in the project that Jesus Christ was about as he came to embrace a world that rejected him and renew it through his own suffering. As we join with him in embracing the world that he loved and seeking to be used by him to renew it, we should not be surprised when suffering comes our way. We should rejoice because it means that God is at work, that when trials and struggles come, we can look at them as ways that God is refining us and changing us and conforming us into the very image of his Son. The Puritan Stephen Charnock has said that the goodness of God makes even the devil a polisher while he intends to be a destroyer. So because of the work of Jesus Christ and because of the hope of the inheritance, God's people are now set free to be exiles, to not need anything from the world, no blessing from the world, no encouragement from the world, no thanks from the world, because we know that our inheritance is not found in an earthly reward. It waits beyond That enables us to understand our trials and struggles and suffering are not strange and out-of-ordinary experiences for the Christian life, but rather a primary means that God uses to make us more like him. He says that our suffering for him is amazingly a suffering with him that makes us like him. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Of course, it goes on in chapter 4 to say that not all suffering is created equal, We're talking about the kind of suffering that that comes from being faithful in the midst of um, challenge. Peter says as much in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4. He says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So you can suffer for doing wrong, and that is not going to conform you 
in the same way into the image of Jesus Christ. But when we suffer for doing right, that is an opportunity for us to understand and be united more deeply to Jesus Christ. And so this is an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, with the heat that we feel in our lives, perhaps, is there some way that God might be at work to refine us and shape us and transform us? Are we in a fire of punishment, or is this perhaps a fire of refining? And if so, then there is an enormous opportunity that comes. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and we talked about how Jesus, through his incarnation at Christmas, his resurrection at Easter, what that all is about is about God's embrace and renewal of the world, And now we see that this embrace and renewal comes through his suffering, his death and resurrection, and that so we, as we join him in that embrace and renewal of the world, are to understand and expect a measure of trial that comes along, even welcome it as the way that God will will conform us into the image of his son. And throughout this letter, and beginning in chapter one, Peter's counsel to to these exiles is really surprising, because he's basically saying, embrace your exile embrace the trials that God sends you because that is how he is refining you. That's how he's shaping you. That's how he's doing in you what he wants to do. So embrace your exile. Don't fight against the culture. Don't resist the culture. This culture that worships its emperor, the Roman culture, worships its emperor as a god. He's saying don't rail against the culture. All throughout this letter, he counsels humility and service. He says just live in such a way that when the Gentiles look, they can only praise the God in heaven who, who claimed you. Um, this is an amazing counsel, and it's just like the advice given to God's people when they were in exile previously. In the Old Testament, the people of God are taken from their promised land and taken into captivity in Babylon by the pagan Babylonian empire, and God says through Jeremiah to those exiles, seek the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. Get married, start businesses, build homes. Seek the welfare of the Babylonians because as they are blessed, be a blessing to them and you will be blessed. You can even see, even in that, you can hear glimpses of the promise to Abraham that the people of God will be a blessing to the nations. And so God continues that work even as he sends the people into exile in Babylon. And we see in 1 Peter that as they're in exile in Rome, the advice is the same. Bless the city into which I have sent you. So if that's what God says to the people of God when they're in Babylon, if that's what he says to the people of God who are in exile in Rome, what do you think he might be saying to those of us who are feeling like we might be in exile or moving into exile in uh, an American culture? As Christendom collapses, as secularism advances, I think the advice is the same for us as the church moving forward. We are and will continue to be out of step with the culture. So we should not be surprised at a fiery trial when it comes upon us. If we are faithful to Jesus, we probably will feel more and more out of step with the culture. And there will be increasing struggle and tension, and this should not surprise us. It should not um, throw us off. We should be expecting it, used to it, and even, amazingly, embrace it and seek to bless the city into which God has sent us. So one practical way to do this is to recognize the temptations that will come as it becomes um, harder to be a faithful Christian. And as we experience those challenges, 
There will be temptations to give up, to give in, to capitulate, to compromise, or perhaps the most immediate temptation is to kind of whine. I think we American Christians can be a very whiny bunch as we become less powerful and as people stop asking us for our advice, we begin to complain. We complain when somebody says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas and we act like that's some great persecution. And maybe to us, God is saying, embrace that exile. I'm at work in it. I'm doing something in it. Look, keep your eyes on your inheritance, not on any earthly reward, not on any earthly thanks, but just seek to be a blessing. And in that struggle, I will shape you to be the people of God that I intend you to be. Embrace your exile. Bless the city to which God has sent you. Ask God to show us how we might be a blessing and how even our trials might be a blessing to us. As we join with Christ in his great project of embrace and renewal through suffering of a world that rejects him, the one who came to seek and save the lost, and because he was seeking and saving lost people, found us and redeemed us, we have the opportunity to fix our eyes not on blessings on earth, but on that eternal inheritance. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and so confidently and joyfully embrace the place where God has us, even through suffering, trusting that at the end we will find him faithful. It's not an empty hope because Jesus Christ came as a baby, lived, died, and rose again for our redemption. So let us live as people who believe it to be true. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are coming and that your hope is not one that will disappoint us. It is one for which we have evidence in your resurrection and in your continuing presence of your spirit in your church. Lord, as those who have not seen him, help us to love him. As those who, who do not now see him, help us to believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining to the outcome of our faith, the very salvation of our souls. Use us, use Nielsville Presbyterian Church in the days to come in a mighty way in this place where you have sent us to be lights shining in a dark world, to be agents of hope and healing in a world of despair and conflict. Lord, set us apart, fill us with your spirit, and use this church in a mighty way for your glory and for the glory of your Son. For we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.